Hey everyone, what's up? My name's River and you're listening to SEU Buzz Podcasts. This morning I am talking with PhD candidate, archaeologist and Student of the Year Award winner, Marion Bailey. Marion, welcome. Hello. Thank you. How are you today? I'm pretty well. That's awesome. So I guess I want to start it off by talking about the most recent Student of the Year Awards. Mm. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what the awards were and um, the work that you put in as well to win the award as well? Sure. Yeah, I um, I hadn't really paid any attention to it. I kind of ignore a lot of those emails that come in. Um, and my supervisor said, Marion, I want to nominate you for a vo- volunteering award. Um, as one of the Student Excellence Awards because a big part of what I like to do outside of my PhD is volunteering generally um, and I do it around the uni and in the community generally and so I said okay and he said just send me like pictures and evidence of all the things you did so I did and then the next thing I know I'm a finalist I was like oh well that's exciting I didn't expect that and then I went that night and all the four people names got read out. So I was like, that's great. I didn't win, but it was a nice event. And then the student award <laughs> was called out and they're like, Marion. what? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it was a real genuine surprise, but it was really nice. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So what kind of volunteer work do you do? Um, a range, I suppose. Some of it's related to my degree. So I chair a couple of um, committees. Um, I'm the student representative for Australia and Oceania for the World Archaeology Congress, and which is really about student advocacy um, and trying to make sure that students have equal access to the range of um, archaeological conferences and resources that are out there. I volunteer a lot. Oh, I used to. Unfortunately, my my granddad passed recently, but I used to volunteer up uh, at his nursing home. You know, I'd play the flute for the residents. Um, and I did a lot of carers roles up there with my grandma. Um, I volunteer at the local church as well. So we do a range of things, I suppose. Um, it can be anything from someone needs their gardening done to just helping do the IT in the, in the parish. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, just just lots of bits and bobs, whatever needs to be done. Mm. Yeah, I also understand that um, at the beginning of the year you had quite a similar experience as to other people living in Lismore mm. um, with the 2022 floods. Uh, and I understand that you did a lot of work here at the evacuation centre as mm. well with um, evacuees and uh, that a lot of your friends were also displaced. Yeah. Um, if you feel comfortable, do you want to talk about your work during the floods and what your involvement was? Yeah, sure. Um, it was... Obviously, so I'm from Western Australia, from Perth, so we get bushfires for sure, but flooding, (laughs) not so much. I didn't really know what to expect, so I kind of spent the whole night on my phone watching my friends posting, you know, on Facebook as the water was coming up and up and up and some of them trying to get out, some it was too late and they were trapped in their houses. Obviously, before all the power died and the internet went and all of that. So kind of that was overnight. So the next day... um, I realized that, wow, I'm about 100 meters away from the evacuation center where I live. So my car had got pretty, pretty waterlogged, but uh, I could walk around by that point. So I walked up to the evacuation center, said, do they need anything? And they said, 
yes. <laughs> and I pretty much then just stayed there. So I left about 1 a.m., 2 a.m. that night. And I went back the next day at 7 a.m. And then I didn't really leave for a while. I just, like, yeah, ate my meals there. <laughs> just kind of lived there for a while. And, yeah, lots, lots of the PhD students, I mean, lots of students generally. But, yeah, a lot of people I know lost their homes, um, were living in their offices, bunking up with us in our units whoever was dry had people staying with us and it was pretty rough for them Mm. yeah and I think as well I mean correct me if I'm wrong um, I'm not an archaeology student um, which is why I'm so grateful to be talking with you today Um, but does a lot of research in archaeology come from floods as well or do archaeologists use floods to be able to look back at the history of um human culture and society and the environment? Yeah, floods are a really interesting marker in uh, the stratigraphy. So that's kind of the different layers of the soils and um, material culture that's built up over time when you see an excavation, those different bands of the stratigraphy. So you can usually see when a flooding event has come through or whether a big river or deluge has washed through a place because all the material culture is kind of washed away from that zone and it's pushed down, whether it's down a bank, down to another cave, down to the edges of a cave. Um, and you can see then if uh, those groups have sort of effectively rebuilt on top of that or if they've moved away, for instance. A lot of the time they've moved away, I mean, not exclusively, but then what's left is a really good record of what it was like before that particular, you know, um, natural event that happened, that hazard, that... Um, was likely very life-changing when you don't have the sort of infrastructure we do now. Uh, So it's a really interesting geological record of something that's culturally very impactful. Very interesting. It would be very interesting to see what archaeologists find in two, three hundred years' time after looking at the floods or floods in the past as well before us. Yeah, you know, will they see that we've rebuilt on top? And there's been another flood. Will they see a gradual shift over the next 20 years of um, buildings being moved into different zones? Yeah, for what's happening in the present now is um, really interesting in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So speaking of the future, I'd like to also talk a little bit about your past. Uh Um, So I understand that you started off your student career as an art student. Focusing on foreign diplomacy. Yeah, yeah. I I really didn't know what to do when I finished high school, but I, I liked languages and I liked politics. And I had this sort of grand idea, oh, I could be a foreign diplomat. I liked the idea of being sent overseas to live somewhere. Um, but yeah, one unit of politics. And I was, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. can imagine for most of us. Be yeah, like, oh, yeah. And then nearly failing my German unit. And I thought maybe languages isn't for me. <laughs> I, I picked up Arabic later. But yeah, it was, I, I really, I thought I knew what I wanted. And then as I think is the case for everyone when they start an undergrad degree, you know, especially when you're right out of high school, you're 17 often still. Yeah, and then I just picked up a unit of archaeology toward the end of the year, and I went, "Oh my gosh, this is this is everything I want to do." Wow, what did you do in that in that first unit of archaeology? Was it just an introductory course? Yeah, it was literally archaeology one hundred and one, and it was taught by this professor Martin Poor, who is still one of my favorite all time professors. I stalk him, like I, I ran into him in Germany. I was like, Martin, <laughs> he's like, "Oh God, it's you again." Um, 
it was, I remember our first lecture, I hadn't even watched Indiana Jones at that point, right? Wow, so you were fresh. I was fresh. Yeah. I had no clue. And he's like, if you think that archaeology is like Indiana Jones and that's what you want it to be like, I'd probably leave now. I was like, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) So you were actually the perfect candidate then from the start. Yeah, I was open, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, okay. And I just want to... backtrack a little bit you said you picked up arabic later on oh yeah what what that is a very interesting language to pick up yeah i was um during my master's i'd gone to a couple of conferences and i'd met these amazing researchers um from all over but particularly from palestine iraq and then at columbia university and the thing they all had in common is they could speak arabic you know whether they were from arabic countries originally and I thought, wow, that is so interesting because the, the archaeology that comes out of the Middle East is it's unbelievable. It's so fascinating. So I thought, well, what would look good on a PhD application if I wanted to go to Colombia or something? I need to have another language and my terrible German is not enough. So I, I um, enrolled in one-on-one tutoring uh, for Arabic. So I learned Arabic for about a year. I got wow. my grade two certificate wow. about the ability of a three-year-old child. <laughs> <laughs> Better than most of us, though. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. And do you continue to um, further your studies in Arabic as well? Or? Not really. Um, once my research shifted to southern China, I thought, oh, I should have studied Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I like to try keep up on the reading, the comprehension. That's certainly easier than the speaking, which I think is the case with most languages. You can usually read and comprehend better than you can speak. Um, I do try stay on on top of it to the level I was at. I don't think I've progressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I understand, it is a very hard language to learn. I feel like the um, the way that they use their mouths is a lot different yeah, to yeah, English. Yeah, the, the sounds that, that come through are not typical of the English language. Um, so, yeah, that was, it was quite interesting. My tutor would try, she'd point to her throat. She's like, okay, it's coming from, you know, here. I go, I'm sure I'm doing that. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Um, now, so speaking as well on um, language and I guess, you know, human history and evolution, mm. um, I understand that you research human evolution by studying their teeth. Yeah. So I wanted to know how does that work and what kind of information can you find out through studying human teeth? Sure. So the good thing about teeth is they're extremely durable. So in kind of various tropical environments for instance bones tend to erode away they just it's not a great environment to to preserve fossils for instance um but that's kind of it's typical the other thing is that also animals will often eat bones um porcupines for instance will eat a lot of bones to get the the minerals for their quills but teeth are so hard that enamel is so strong they'll usually persist right up until now so you can get teeth that are many many millions of years old that are really in perfect condition and teeth are sort of a record of your life uh, at least your juvenile years um they kind of are like tree rings in the way they grow. And so as they grow, they're recording kind of these chemical signatures that are coming into your body from what you eat or drink, um, as well as sort of metabolites that occur in your body, like um, stress reactions or when you have injury and there's chronic inflammation and things like that. You'll find that 
the teeth keep a record of that. So what I do is I, I usually cut the teeth. Um, I tend to get the teeth toward the end. So once all the other analyses have been done, and just a few of them because it's quite destructive. And we try to put them together again. But once you've cut through a tooth, it, you still have lost potential information no matter what you do. So I cut through it and I polish that, that flat surface of the tooth. And I like to focus on the M1 or M2 molar, which is just these two down on your jaw, because they they develop the earliest. So you're getting that pre-birth signal. So when your mum is eating or whoever is um, there is eating, you are getting like uh, through the placenta, that chemical signature. So um, for instance, barium is a... Is a a trace element and it can be used to discover the weaning or the nursing signals so when you were um, breastfed or even bottle fed it doesn't matter it's kind of the same thing in terms of the signature um, you can see because you're the what the, the the pregnant woman is eating comes in you get a barium trace signal into the, the little baby's not fully deformed teeth yet and once they're born they're then getting the milk which has a different signature of the barium. And then once they're eating, another signature completely. So you can then see in the tooth these bands, these really strong bands that signal when these changes have occurred. So then you can see when were they weaned off milk, for instance. Um, and then you can see it for like lithium, which is kind of an indicator of proteins usually. So um, when I'm looking at uh, human evolution, for instance, if you have oh, not just humans, but hominids, so primates, apes, um, things like that. It's a really good way of seeing where there are periods of starvation and abundance in their environment. So where they seeking out particular food groups to um, try supplement their diet because they're going through this period of starvation, you can see fat catabolism. Um, in these teeth because you get a much stronger lithium signal as the protein is being released into the body. So, yeah, it's kind of this um, uh, composition of all the elements you've been exposed to in the environment and that you've taken into your body and you can track mobility and see where someone's moved through their life and you can track um, what they've eaten broadly, whether they are exposed to things like lead, for instance, um, whether there's disease indicators sometimes. Uh, yeah. So that is incredible. <laughs> so I have a question then um, about how you can track a human's lifespan from early years and in infancy. Is that possible as well after they, they lose their teeth and they, they get their adult teeth? Is that information still transferred mm -hmm. into adult teeth? Yes. Yes, it is. Wow. Yeah. So what you'll find is as that tooth is growing, that molar is growing in the jaw, it's picking up those signals as it develops. So as you lose the baby tooth, that adult tooth is still developing already. So you're getting that signal anyway. That is incredible. I had no idea that my teeth held so many secrets. Yeah, they do. Your <laughs> yeah. dentist, they'll know. <laughs> yeah, they're not quite it's so not evil. true. If your dentist is cutting your tooth in half, go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> also, how do you cut a tooth in half? How is that possible? Yeah, you use a, like a diamond-tipped saw blade and you right. affix it quite strongly with some cement wax or resin to a block and then you very carefully <laughs> slide it down the blade and slice it and really hope that it doesn't break 
Wow. Wow. So a bit of tooth surgery going on there oh, for yes, sure. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um so I'm gonna ask a bit of a trashy question sure. because I'm really interested. You've mentioned uh, in some of your research that I've read that the particular human group that you've been studying in in history um, is where the Bigfoot myth Mm. has come from. Mm. Um, I'm dying to know, is Bigfoot real? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, I I would never say no. (laughs) Gigantopithecus blackie is is an extinct hominid. So it is technically outside of the human species, but it's within the hominoid group. So we're all kind of connected in that sense. And while technically they did die out about 300,000 years ago, so there probably wasn't much overlap. I don't know, though, because we have stories and oral traditions about things that you didn't think existed, and then sometimes you find them in the archaeological record or all around, and who's to say that maybe someone found a giganto bone somewhere that you know no archaeologist found and looked at this long femur and went, hmm... Bigfoot. <laughs> I, I think they're not. I think they're probably not technically related, but often Gigantopithecus is used by um, Bigfoot, Yeti, Sasquatch um, devotees to as proof that there were these giant creatures. At least if Giganto wasn't, look, but it's proof there could be because this is you know a two point five three meter tall, two hundred and seventy kilo animal that walks potentially upright potentially not you know we don't really know we only have its teeth but it's ape-like it's primate-like why wouldn't the bigfoot and the sasquatch myth have an element of truth to it if this existed once so it's often used in that kind of um uh evidentiary (laughs) i don't know yeah (laughs) right and so you said so you only have bigfoot's teeth or the Mm. i'm sorry what was the (laughs) what was the classical name for bigfoot gigantopithecus but we call it giganto giganto gigantic gigantic (laughs) yeah Yeah. um so you said that you had the teeth for gigantic giganto (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) um what what can you tell us about looking at the teeth from this animal primate Mm. well there's been like a huge amount of analysis done on these teeth so we have several thousand of them now and about three or four mandibles that's the lower jawbone and we don't have anything else of the creature so because of that the teeth are just you know they go through a slew of analyses um but this is kind of the first time this trace element work's been done just because it is sort of the most destructive like end product you can do but uh, you know there's been all sorts of research on their dental caries on the morphology of the teeth trying to figure out what they ate um it's amazing like the the formation of the cusps on your molars and how they wear down and what order they wear down can really show you whether you're eating hard foods grains seeds tubers bamboo even um, and these fruit, uh, these caries in the molars suggest that they were probably eating sort of acidic fruits as well. Um, we can use the tooth size, for instance, to look at sexual dimorphism between the species. Um, then you can also try to extrapolate out the size, which is what they've done using the, the molars, the canines and the mandible to try to get those size estimates. Um, 
obviously when you have size estimates, you, you still have to take it with a pinch of salt because you are estimating out. Um, but it's a pretty well-researched science um, and there's sort of like a range of figures. So you, you don't just say it's just this one size that it was. Um, what else? People have done oxygen and carbon analysis on the teeth, which I'm also doing. And that can give you an idea of the sort of the water compositions, sort of the temperatures that were existing at the time, whether they were eating C3 or C4 plants. And that designation comes from the photosynthetic pathway of the plant. So you can, if they've kind of got values that fall more in the C3 range or values that more in the C4 range, that also gives you an idea of the vegetation that was existing at the time. So it's sort of paleoenvironmental reconstruction. Um, yeah, so I guess it can give you a lot of information. <laughs> wow, yeah. I had no idea as well that it could track the um, climate at the time yeah. as well and the temperatures. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So usually you want to corroborate that with things like speleotherms or stalagmites and stalactites, um, flow stones in the caves. They'll also give you... Um, a good range of values that you can corroborate with your teeth because teeth are still a biological substance and in that you have to be careful that there's not, we call it post-burial diagenesis, but effectively it means that there's been um, elements in the soil that have come up into the tooth through the dentine, which is more porous and soft than enamel, and that's potentially changed or overprinted that chemical signature in the teeth with the chemical signature of the soil. There's ways to check that. I mean, I do uranium testing on all my teeth, which is usually a really good indicator. If there's uranium in the teeth in this sort of diffuse pattern, that suggests that this has um, travelled up from the soil into the tooth and at that point, I wouldn't be confident of my findings because it means there's sort of been this overriding of the biogenic signal. But if you don't have that, then you can be pretty confident that tooth is effectively a closed system. So it's a good record. Mm. Wow. And and so what region of the world does... Um, I'm just going to use Bigfoot because yeah, I can't remember the not? other word. Uh, what part of the world does this research come from and is Bigfoot... Does Bigfoot come from? Yeah, so pretty specifically the southern China region. So it's about a 400,000 square mile plot. So it's still large, but it is seems to be primarily um, restricted to southern China. There's been some indications that they might have come down toward Vietnam and Thailand. However, those teeth are still hugely debated. Um, I mean, I personally don't think those teeth are giganto but that's also not my particular speciality the morphologies of teeth so I leave that to the others to argue over but they're like individual teeth so we would confidently say restricted to sort of southern China. Speaking of Bigfoot and that being um, a real part of biological history Mm. um, it's also a part of human folklore culture history Mm. Um, Do you also, when you study teeth, are you able to kind of understand an element of um, human folklore and culture that was happening around that time when you're looking at that teeth? Because I know you can track now the um, foods that they were eating, what their mothers were eating, Mm. what the environment looked like. Do you get kind of an understand of that culture that surrounds it as well? Yeah, you, you can actually. And there's been some really interesting research that's come out and it's it's. I mean, usually it tends to be um, 
well, from what I've seen, a lot of it comes out from Scandinavia or even the Netherlands. And they look at the differences between populations based on what they're eating and the mobility. And this isn't just Scandinavia, but a lot of the recent research has come out of there. But you can see whether people are moving between particular groups, for instance, over large geological locations. And it's often, at least then, um, women being moved between groups. Uh, then you can see differences in the diet, often between, um, you know, at that point, the men and the women, the children, right? And then you can see between class status, so often the upper classes. This was actually some really interesting research that came out, um, Samantha Leggett at Cambridge Uni, and she was looking at the isotopes and teeth between the different classes in her medieval England setting. And it's really, you know, we have this big picture and perspective of these huge feasts and lots of meat and lots of ale and all that sort of thing and the castles. It seemed that they didn't actually have a huge amount of meat in their diet necessarily at all, um, which is kind of, I suppose, not what I would have thought from those really wealthy groups. So that's kind of, it, can, it can't necessarily tell you like the whole story, but it can provide a bit more evidence into what was going on between groups and individuals and then from that you can kind of paint a picture uh, for instance some research came out about a neanderthal population in spain recently and it's, it looked like this neanderthal group was qu- not quite vegetarian but primarily vegetarian and so but when you go to france for instance there's a lot of seafood in the neanderthal diet so you, that's yeah something you might not have ever known if you just looked at the the skeleton or the the stone tools or the rock art or the instruments that are coming out of that um yeah yeah it's fascinating to think of um neanderthals in the french region fishing yes, you know and that yeah. would have taken up such a huge part of their life yeah it's really interesting i mean obviously when it comes to teeth if you're looking outside the chemical properties you then have um the ways you can shape your teeth whether it's into points or inlay gemstones for instance or um, use it as a, a form of um body modification and that's quite a consistent thing you see through different cultures and periods mm. yeah do you look at a lot of teeth that have had modifications happen to them? Not a not a lot. Mine tend to be a bit too old. Um, so a lot of the teeth that I look at hadn't quite got to that. I mean, it's not quite a it's – a, it's a debated term, but to put it broadly, like modern humans, right? So in quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> um, what you consider homo sapien sapien, um, when you look at Homo erectus, for instance, you're not really seeing that same kind of um, attention to individuality within the body. But that being said, we also don't have huge numbers of skeletal remains to draw those inferences from. However, when you come into, say, um, the Incans or the Mayans, you see a lot of teeth being manipulated and with um, gems being put in them. And even in China and India as well. So that's kind of like a again in quotes, modern human phenomenon, but not exclusively. There are exceptions. <laughs> mm. We've spoken so much about the amazingness that comes from teeth in your work. Mm. What is your favourite part about the work that you do? Um, I think it's how easily applied to various disciplines it is. You know, so 
using a multi-collector mass spectrometer quadrupole having a grounding in biogeochemistry and archaeology it sort of leaves you a bit of a jack of all trades so you can get involved in all people's really cool research um, it means I'm not limited necessarily to a specific era or a specific um, people. Um, I can kind of spread my wings and flip between projects and excavations and areas of research. So I say the flexibility of the applications is probably my favourite thing. <laughs> mm. And um, you were on the podcast a couple of years ago mm. as well, talking about your research. Um What's changed from the research you were doing then to now? I know that you mentioned um, applying your work into medical fields and other fields. Mm. Um, how would that work? Yeah, I'm really interested in that. I mean, I've always been really interested in medicine generally. Before I did my master's, I was kind of trying to decide between medical school or doing a master's in archaeology because I really liked both. But then I thought the archaeologists looked like they had a lot more fun. <laughs> so... I thought that was the sensible choice. Um, because teeth are such a good record, um, if you're able to run studies, and there are some of these studies that are ongoing right now, but if you're able to run studies that where the um, parents of the child from birth are tracking illnesses, uh, injuries, anything like that, their diet... And then once their baby teeth fall out, sending it to the researchers who then can correlate the um, signals in the teeth with these events. It's then kind of like um, it can work as an indicator for potential illness and disease. So you get to see what, what do those teeth look like? What does it look like when there's been like a serious injury and there's been a cortisol flood into the body? What does it look like when there's someone going through extreme chronic stress or there's been mineral depletion or they've got you know an abundance of lead in their body that shouldn't be there so I mean obviously you don't want to then just like remove a tooth from someone and be like let me check what's going on in your body <laughs> <laughs> but it's it the potentials mean that we might be able to apply that for other things like for instance the brain so thin slices of the brain uh so if there's been um I mean, obviously, currently, right now, when we look at brains, they are from deceased individuals. Uh, but if you're doing pathologies, for instance, and you're screening and you have to take a pathology of bone, tissue, brain, if you cryofreeze them and thin section them, we can perform the same analysis on them and try and see if we're seeing these trace element markers within that tissue that might indicate some kind of illness or disease that isn't otherwise picked up mm. pro broadly. It's all a bit theoretical still, but... Mm, but exciting work as well. It sounds like the Tooth Fairy has her work cut out for yeah, her. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I've only got time for one last question sure. for you today. Um, you're coming to the end of your PhD, which mm, has apparently. been... <laughs> yeah, so they say. So they tell me. <laughs> which is huge and massive. Um, what's next for you on the horizon? It's a good question. Um, I suppose right now, finish, and then I think I might stay here for another six months or so working with Renault. He's got all these teeth in his office and I want at them. <laughs> so he's going to, I think he's going to try to find some money for a postdoc, keep me on. Um, 
But after that, you know, there's so much I want to do. I think I might go to Germany for a while. I quite like that. I might stay in Australia, but you know, I, I'd like to s- spread my wings a little bit and just see where I can study and what I can do research-wise and sort of push that as far as I can. I think the academic sphere is quite a struggle, quite a difficult one, um, and I'm not sure that I want to necessarily pursue difficulty all the time in my work as much as the research is fascinating so there's also industry options there's you know great research coming out of government bodies like the CSIRO Um, and I could always go back to consultancy which is what I did before my PhD back to being um, an archaeologist in the field so who knows (laughs) who knows lots of options I'm really excited to see where you go after your PhD and I'm really excited to get my hands onto maybe some of your writing or your research yeah 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 for sure 